This is the best of the Buzzmeter podcast with Howie Kurtz. It's the Media Buzzmeter with Howard Kurtz. The New York Times delivers all kinds of exclusives on all kinds of subjects, but I'm a little bit surprised to see this latest investigative story having to do with digging into the life of Britney Spears. Now, Britney Spears is back in the news. It just feels like one of those throwback Thursday things, even though it's Wednesday. Uh, Welcome to the podcast, by the way. Uh, Britney Spears, for so many years, Britney Spears was not only somebody who was a famous pop star, but she was famous for being famous, and we all had to go through the ups and downs of her crazy life. And she's been out of the news largely for many years now, but the reason she's back in the headlines is there's actually going to be a hearing on her conservatorship. In other words, her father was able to get a legal order to put himself in charge of her affairs, and she wants out of that, not shockingly. So the New York Times, in its intrepid reporting, obtained a bunch of documents and reports the following. In the years since a judge gave Britney Spears' dad broad control over her life and finances, concerned fans have questioned how the court could continue to deem her unable to protect and care for herself despite the fact that she's still out there performing as a pop star. Uh, Our father and others say, oh, you know what? We've got this down to a science. It's a smooth-running machine. She was at a low point. She's benefiting. And, uh, you know, she can try to get rid of this anytime she wants. Well, Britney was silent. This is like a soap opera. That's why I'm reading it that way. All right, but now, confidential court records obtained by the New York Times reveal that Ms. Spears, 39, 39, expressed serious opposition to the conservatorship earlier and more often than had previously been known and said it restricted everything from whom she dated to the color of her kitchen cabinets. Well, that goes too far. I think we can all agree Britney Spears should be able to have any color kitchen cabinets that she freaking wants. Uh, Who she dated? Wow. Okay, so... um, A court investigator wrote back in 2016, this has been going on for a while, as you can see. She articulated she feels the conservatorship has become an oppressive and controlling tool against her. The system had too much control. Brittany said too, too much. So now maybe that will all be resolved. You know, it is kind of fascinating because the fact that she goes out and performs and makes all this money is what keeps all these people on the payroll. You know, so her dad, you know, I'm I'm not disputing the fact that her dad probably has her best interest at heart, but, you know, she's 39 years old and he's telling her who she can date. Like, on what planet does that make sense? Because she made some bad choices when she was younger. Anyway, I don't know how much people really even care about this anymore, but there'll be more Britney uh, news and we will be right on it. Now, yesterday on the podcast, uh, I talked about a Daily Beast story quoting sources as saying the following, that Donald Trump, when he was president, talked to his aides, and some of these aides took it seriously, about having the FCC or even the Department of Justice uh, bring some sort of regulatory action against Saturday Night Live and Jimmy Kimmel and other shows that made fun of him. Uh, You could call this the, you know, Alec Baldwin derangement syndrome. Uh, And this was, you know... uh, just as the president pushed DOJ in a far more serious vein 
to investigate in the final weeks of his presidency, you know, the Italy conspiracy theory about satellite technology changing U.S. voting machines and other unproven allegations of fraud. This was earlier, and this was like, hey, NSL, how are they allowed to do that? Okay, well, Donald J. Trump has now weighed in on that story, and he says the following. The story that I asked the Department of Justice to go after ratings challenged Without Trump, he says in a parenthesis. And it's true, the ratings have gone plummeted uh, in the post-Trump era for SNL. Saturday Night Live and other late-night losers is total fake news. It was fabricated, there were no sources, and yet the lamestream media goes with it. I did say, however, that Alec Baldwin had no talent, certainly when it comes to imitating me. The one who had what it took was Daryl Hammond. I do think Daryl Hammond is tremendously talented. Uh, but look, a lot of people liked Baldwin's uh, version of Trump. And then the former president adds this. With all that being said, however, I do believe that the 100% one-sided shows should be considered an illegal campaign contribution from the Democrat Party. Hard to believe I got 75 million votes, the most of any sitting president, despite all of that, together with a very fraudulent election. 2024 or before? Exclamation point. So just to unpack those last three words, okay, so he's saying, hey, I was robbed. I'm going to run, but maybe I'll be back before then. Isn't that kind of the cutesy thing that he's implying? But in, in the very same press release, and I got this in my inbox, as did, you know, a zillion reporters, in which he says the story's fabricated, it's made up, there's no sources, it's complete crap. He does then say that he believes in the underlying principle that action should be taken, and the FEC actually be the one to do this, Federal Election Commission, again, shows they're 100% one-sided because they're just really thinly disguised campaign donations to the other party. But if you believe that, and by the way, we have a First Amendment in this country, we have um, broadcasting rules that perfectly allow, there's no more fairness doctrine, and hasn't been, since the Reagan administration. So if you want to be a one-sided show, you can. But if Trump believes that it's an illegal campaign contribution to have a one-sided show, then wouldn't that apply to all the conservative shows that, like him? Is it only ones that... All right, I think you get my drift here. Hey, before we get down to business, uh, tip of the hat to Rich Lowry, who, after 23 years, is he's stepping down as the editor of National Review the print magazine, and he's handing uh, the reins to his longtime colleague, very smart conservative named Ramesh Panuru. Uh, but he's still going to be the editor-in-chief of National Review, and he's just going to concentrate on the digital side and growing the brand and all this other stuff. I mean, I've known Rich Lowry since he got that job, when he was in his 20s. I mean, you know, William F. Buckley, the founder and editor forever, and then, you know, this young kid who was brilliant, and you may agree with where the direction that National Review has gone or not, but it has been, you know, a consistently conservative magazine that obviously has divided opinions or had divided opinions, and still today, over Donald Trump. But anyway, uh, for Lowry to uh, have that kind of staying power, uh, you know, not just through his editorship of the magazine, uh, but also, uh, you know, he writes a column for Politico. He, he goes on TV, used to be a Fox News contributor. Um, it, it's just, it's been quite a run. Uh, as I say, it's not going anywhere, but the print magazine, and obviously all print magazines are struggling, uh, will be handed off. All right, number one. 
I got to start num- by number one by saying this affectionately and uh, with a little bit of tongue in cheek about as a native New Yorker. But have you? How do I put this? It's a very important thing who gets to lead the nation's largest city. I mean, New York is the media capital. It's in many ways the cultural capital. It's in many ways the financial capital of the country. Eight million people live there. It's a really big deal. Uh, New York City has a budget larger than all but a few states. So, you know, it's not like it's pure hype. But I've got to say, the amount of coverage that has gone into the New York City mayoral primary, which was yesterday, we'll get to the non-results, the the pseudo-results in a second, is so out of proportion to the public interest around the country, especially since you didn't have a really big-name candidate running. This wasn't a Rudy Giuliani election. It wasn't a Mike Bloomberg election. It wasn't an Ed Koch election. Uh, it wasn't even a Bill de Blasio election. It was a bunch of people who were barely known outside the five boroughs. But because all of the major, so many major networks are based in New York, so many journalists are based in New York, uh, Wall Street Journal, New York Times, uh, and on and on and on, you know, for them it's a local story, and so it got inflicted on the rest of the country. When I was the New York bureau chief for the Washington Post, I would be some some local crime would take place. Central Park Five uh, assault case, a horrible, horrible story. And for the first day or so, like I thought, oh, this is a huge story in New York. I didn't think anybody else cared. But no, it went national like that because it's New York. Because it's New York and the networks are in New York. That's the biggest single thing. And everybody there cares about it and thinks everyone. All right, anyway. So you had this bizarro, in my view, uh, ranked choice voting thing, which is why we not only don't know this morning who is the next mayor of New York City. Well, remember, this is the Democratic primary. But it's kind of tantamount to election. Curtis Sliwa, the former Guardian Angels guy, won the Republican nomination. He's an interesting character, but he's not going to be the next mayor. So the way it came out is, kind of as the, the pre-election polls predicted, Eric Adams, he's the Brooklyn Borough President. He's an African-American. He is a former police captain uh, who basically ran on law and order, except he ran not only as a former cop, but as somebody who wanted to reform the police department. But he was totally against uh, defund the police, And as crime became a bigger and bigger issue in New York, a surge in crime, a surge in homicides, as the pandemic was winding down, this is also true in Chicago and in a lot of other major cities, uh, Eric Adams uh, surged to the top of the polls. So he finished first in this multi-candidate field, there were eight significant candidates, with uh, almost 32% of the vote. The number two finisher was Maya Wiley, former civil rights attorney, past advisor to Mayor de Blasio. And she had 22% of the vote. And then Catherine Garcia, who also worked for de Blasio as a sanitation commissioner, um, finished with 19.5%. Garcia surged toward the end because she was endorsed by the New York Times. So now you have to tally the second place votes and the third place votes. Look, I think it's extremely likely, given that more than 10 point lead, that Eric Adams is the next mayor of New York City. Because one or the other, Wiley or Garcia, would have to win the overwhelming share or you know, second place of the other person's uh, votes. And that's unlikely to happen. Andrew Yang, who was leading the polls for a while and got the most publicity because he, he was a national figure from running for president. He finished with, what, about 12%. You know, not a complete embarrassment, but a real fade. 
And what happened is, you know, when we got down to the wire, uh, he got a lot of scrutiny, and there was, you know, he was he was the nominal front runner, so everybody else beat up on him. But he soaked up a lot of the media oxygen, and that took some of the spotlight off of some of the other candidates until the very end. Now, um, some uh, some high, some takeaways from the Times uh, saying that this is fascinating. The one borough that Eric Adams didn't win was Manhattan, which is by far the richest borough, the most liberal borough. So he's a guy who had more sort of blue-collar or working-class appeal in Brooklyn, where he's the borough president, in Queens, in Staten Island, and the Bronx. Also, the kind of places that are really worried about crime. Also, uh, Brooklyn and Queens uh, have, as does the Bronx, significant black communities. But there were other black candidates in the race. And he had this kind of moderate platform. So a lot of people are going to come in and say, oh, you know, this just shows you that progressives are getting routed and none of the progressive candidates were able to do as well. Well, part of what happened is that the next two candidates, Garcia and Wiley, split the liberal vote. If one of them hadn't been the race, maybe it would have been tighter. Or maybe one of them would have won. New York has never had a female mayor. And both of them wanted to become that first female mayor. Um, But also, you know, that's where you win elections in New York City. You win them where most of the people live, in places like Brooklyn, Queens, and the Bronx. Uh, And you don't win them only in Manhattan. Uh, Also, as I was saying, Adams ran against defund the police. He said that was a conversation being pushed by a lot of white, affluent young people. Um, And, you know, so he had the credibility of having been part of the NYPD, uh, when he accused Maya Wiley, for example, of wanting to slash the police department budget. Uh, Garcia came out and openly said it's time for a woman to leave the city, but that does not seem to be in the cards. Um, Yang was interesting. I mean, he got support from the Orthodox Jewish community in New York. Uh, he was a guy who didn't even vote in previous New York elections. He wasn't part of the system. He was an outsider. He was a celebrity candidate. Um, but he was also a businessman who, you know, came up with a lot of what you know, he described as, you know, common sense things. In a different year, he might have done it, but he didn't do it. And he, what Eric Adams said uh, yesterday about the power of social media, social media does not pick a candidate, he said. People on Social Security pick a candidate. Pretty good line. Was aimed pretty much at Andrew Yang, who was a social media phenomenon, and at the liberals in, in the Democratic Party that rallied again around Maya Wiley. Because Twitter is not real life. If Twitter liberals were the bulk of the Democratic Party, Joe Biden would not be president. He was creamed on social media. It would have been Elizabeth Warren or Kamala or Bernie, right? Okay. Related story from yesterday's elections in the state of New York. Uh, in Buffalo, where I went to college, State University of New York at Buffalo, Huge, massive upset. The four-term Democratic mayor. Guy's been running the city. That always is a warning sign. You know, nobody. you get tired of somebody after 16 years. Byron Brown was upset, or apparently upset, because uh, there's still absentee ballots to come and so forth, by about seven points, by a young phenomenon, a woman named India Walton, former nurse, community activist, who uh, is a self-described socialist. Uh, she won with the support of the Democratic Socialists of America and the Working Families Party. And it's very AOC-like. You know, she's a self-described socialist. She was thought to have no chance to win. She knocks off this powerful incumbent, um, goes out, busts her butt, and she would be, 
and, and she still has to win a general election, uh, but Buffalo is a very Democratic city. She would be the first socialist mayor of a major American city since 1960 when a guy I never heard of, Frank Ziedler, stepped down as the mayor of Milwaukee. And I guess this must have been captured because she called her mom and it was on video. She said, Mommy, I won, Mommy. I'm mayor of Buffalo. Well, not till Janu- January, but yeah. She's pretty excited. So look for her to get a lot of national publicity. India Walton. You're listening to the best of the BuzzMeter podcast with Howie Kurtz. All right, number two. Crime was a big uh, issue in this New York campaign, as I just said. And crime is the subject of a speech by President Biden today because this is a major league problem for Democrats because almost every major city is run by Democrats. And uh, the surge as the pandemic winds down in crime in Chicago, in New York, in Washington, in Portland, has just been off the charts. I mean, the, the number of homicides is surging. The number of other major crimes is surging. Um, so Politico starts off a piece that's kind of sympathetic to the Biden administration. Uh, 6 a.m. last week, mass shooting in Chicago. Eight people shot. Five people died. That morning, a White House official was on the phone with Mayor Lori Lightfoot's office. What could they do to help? I'm from the federal government, and I'm here to help you. It was the third mass shooting in just over a week just in Chicago. day earlier, mass shooting injured 14 people, killed one in Austin, Texas. Uh, on Father's Day, Sumter County, Florida, nine people were shot, one fatally. The list goes on and on and on. So Biden, remember, Joe Biden was never part of the defund the police movement. He was uh, the guy who, as a senator, uh, pushed the major crime bill in 1994 during the Clinton administration that was thought to hurt him during the with the, at least the liberal wing of the Democratic Party when he ran for president this time. He's been focused on other things. He don't want to talk about this. He wants to talk about COVID and vaccines and infrastructure and voting rights. But nevertheless, he's given a speech on crime today because this is going to be a major liability for the Democratic Party. So homicides for the first quarter of 2021, 24% higher, same period in 2021, and after all, much of the country was locked down. 49% higher than in the first quarter of 2019. That's pre-pandemic. And so uh, advocates say that guns are driving much of that spike. So the DOJ yesterday, this is part of this rollout, uh, announced a new uh, bunch of strike forces aimed at stopping illegal gun trafficking in major cities like Chicago and New York, uh, D.C. and elsewhere. But it's going to take a lot more than that. And the fact is, you know, Biden's going to talk about getting communities involved and so forth. He doesn't really have many tools. First of all, um, crime is a local responsibility, largely. The feds can give money, but basically mayors, police commissioners, uh, this is true in the suburbs as well, are the first line of defense. Secondly, you know, I mean, we can argue about how much of this is because of guns and should there be gun control, but President Biden that guy has gotten nowhere with his gun control legislation. He's also gotten nowhere with his police reform legislation. There's still talks going on, but so that's a, a problem in Congress. So I, I don't know what this one speech is going to do, but I think he sort of has to give it because it's a big issue and could be a big issue if this continues at this surging pace going into 2022. Number three, everybody knew what was going to happen yesterday in the Senate, which was that the big Democratic sweeping voting rights bill, the For the People Act, was going to go down. 
It went down with 50 Democratic votes and zero Republican votes. So that's not enough. That's not even close enough to get to 60. So interesting, I'm looking at this New York Times story, and it talks about the demise of the For the People Act, a far-reaching voting rights bill that proponents say is an essential tool for saving democracy. Well, we've heard so much of that. If you don't pass this bill, you're for Jim Crow. If you don't pass this bill, you don't believe in democracy. But listen to the second paragraph of this New York Times news story. It was a flawed bill that had little chance of testing the limits of what, if anything, is still possible in Washington. Voting rights activists and Democratic lawmakers may even find that the collapse of this law opens up more plausible, if still highly unlikely, paths to reform. So the problem is it was overreach by the libs. It was full of these, and this is the Times acknowledging this in a news story. But where were, were, were these acknowledgments? I mean, some journalists obviously talked about this. But basically, you watch TV, you're like, either this is the biggest massive overreach by the Democrats designed to wipe out the Republican Party, or its failure would mean the absolute collapse of American democracy. So in this bill, S-1, uh, had public financing of elections. Now, maybe that's a good idea, maybe it's not, but does democracy depend on it? National mail voting. This was not, in part, about stopping you know, um, states and localities from uh, overturning elections, engaging, you know, uh, encouraging fraud, tighter uh, voting restrictions and all of that. In fact, the bill itself, and again, this is the New York Times, folks, focused on what was uh, animating reformers back in 2019. That's when this bill was drawn up as a kind of a wish list. Well, it's not going to pass. Trump's not going to sign it. So we'd like to go after corruption, the Trump administration, dark money, after the Supreme Court decision in Citizens United, voter ID laws that um, people argue you know make it more difficult, particularly for minorities to vote. The fact is, uh, Stacey Abrams and others are now coming around to the fact that voter ID laws are okay. I mean, look, you can't get a driver's license. You can't... Uh, do a lot of things without some kind of identification. Why is it so outrageous, as long as it's not done in an unfair and onerous way, to say that people have to show some kind of ID in order to be eligible to vote? I don't think it's crazy. That's what the moderate Senate Democrats want to do. And as the Times says, the bill was originally seen as a political statement, a progressive wish list, or a messaging bill, not a realistic legislative effort. Now they tell us. It was not designed to appeal to the moderate Senate Democrats who progressives hope would eliminate the filibuster. Well, the filibuster is not going to be eliminated thanks to Joe Manchin, Kristen Sinema, and others. And this thing was never, ever, ever going to pass. And I think now, I don't know whether anything can pass. Because remember, Manchin came out with his um, compromise that did include voter ID requirements. Uh, other things that you think the other side might like. And, you know, Mitch McConnell and Republicans came and said, oh, I don't think so. We don't like this bill either. So they don't want any bill. I think it's fair to say many of them. I'm sure there's some Republicans who would like a compromise here. And I don't think any bill is going to pass at the federal level. And that's why all the action is at the state level. All right, number four. Have you heard about this? Houston Methodist Hospital has now either fired or accepted the resignation of 153 workers who refused to take the coronavirus vaccine. Uh, this hospital system had announced uh, back in the beginning of April that employees, if they wanted to keep their jobs, had to get vaccinated. Now, 
Um, so 178 workers were suspended because they hadn't gotten the vaccine by the deadline, which was June 7th. They had two more weeks to get it. Out of those employees, 25 gave up and got the vaccinations. The rest of them are no longer employed. Now, there was a lawsuit over this. A group of the employees um, had sued over the vaccine mandate, saying the hospital couldn't force them to take what they described as an experimental vaccine. But a federal judge threw that out. Here's the decision. This is not coercion. Methodist is trying to do their business of saving lives without giving them the COVID-19 virus. It is a choice made to keep staff, patients, and their families safer. I honestly can't get my head around this. Maybe there are some religious objections. It's Methodist Hospital. But if you work in the healthcare field, so every day you're going to be in contact with people who come into the hospital and are sick. Uh, maybe they're sick from COVID. Maybe they're sick from something else and they don't want to get COVID. And you have an opportunity to get this life-saving vaccine and you refuse to get it. I don't blame the hospital for saying, hey, this is a condition of work. This is not like... You know, there's some debate about what if you have a white-collar job and you work in an office and you don't want to get the vaccine, you know, are you endangering uh, fellow people? But in a healthcare place, in a hospital where people are sick and in some cases dying, how could you expect to keep your job if you don't get the vaccine? By the way, uh, a new study shows, this is from the website Study Finds, which I find quite useful. There was, if there was a growing mental health crisis before 2020, the new study says the pandemic made it so much worse. Half of Americans feel they lost complete control of their lives during the last year. Survey of 2,000 people, that's a big survey. 47% feel helpless. 44% say they hit their lowest emotional point within the last year. Americans are struggling more with anxiety, 42%. Depression, 37% and loneliness, 31% than ever before. All right, let's wrap up here with number five, and it has to do with TikTok. And really, a lot of social media uh, this could apply to. It's a piece in the Atlantic magazine about algorithms. You know, Facebook does this all the time, decides what to serve you up in your newsfeed. So somebody wrote a first-person piece saying, there's something wrong with me, and TikTok knows it. I can tell because its recommendation algorithm Keep providing me with videos that only a horrible person would like. One morning last week, the app recommended a video of a girl in a red dress saying slowly, I'm officially at the age where I can date you or your dad. In the next video, a quote doctor tried to sell me some coffee-based weight loss drink. Uh, then there was a woman who looked like she was in her 20s, but she was actually 43. Then a drinking game involving White Claw. Then an alpha female, a cop. A woman uh, taking a teeth whitening device out of her mouth. In other words, really kind of silly and sometimes gross stuff. This is disturbing, says the author, because the recommendation algorithm TikTok uses to pull videos for the personalized For You feed is known for being scarily precise. So she's not saying, hey, this is not me. This is crazily inaccurate. She's saying this is chilling. Some intelligent people say it could be mind control. TikTok refers to, to my feed as my algorithm, as if it was an extension of myself. Then she quotes some people, uh, other people, Amy Rooker from Michigan. She downloaded TikTok at the beginning of the pandemic, was surprised at how quickly it perfectly pinpointed who she was as a person. But after she used TikTok to get some job interview tips, from then on, it was full of, uh, what do you call it, hashtag girl bosses. Uh, this woman says, I go to TikTok as a reprieve for fun and often dumb content uh, or cat content. I did not want it interrupted with a bunch of advice about how to get ahead in the business world. 
So TikTok actually says in an explanatory blog post uh, that, you know, the algorithm is kind of magical. And the recommendations are designed, says TikTok, to continuously improve, correct, and learn from you. In other words, it all depends on what you click on. The post explains there's a way for you to kind of uh, influence your feed by clicking not interesting on on, uh, videos that you think are just not really designed for you. But, so, the the author doesn't like this. She says, okay, don't tell me to do more work, but I guess I could do that if I really wanted to hone my feed. Maybe the more interesting question is why I feel so embarrassed about having a bad feed in the first place. In other words, again, Facebook, Instagram, they all kind of figure out what you like, what you don't like, and try to feed you. So you could say that's a customer service. At the same time, it's creepy. It's creepy that some, it's not even a person sitting there saying, well, you know, this person's really interested in baseball, so we'll feed them a lot of baseball items. Like, I'm a huge Beatles fanatic, and there's all kinds of Beatles stuff and classic rock uh, on my Facebook feed. And I kind of like that because I see a lot of things I wouldn't ordinarily see. So I click on it, and I know by clicking on it, I'm encouraging them. But, you know, then I get, you know, a new um, video from Paul McCartney or something. Uh, If I don't like it, I guess there's ways I could affect it. But TikTok, which has, you know, a lot of, remember, this is basically a young person's app. A lot of dancing, a lot of hip stuff, a lot of silly stuff, a lot of funny stuff, a lot of cat stuff, a lot of dog stuff, certainly. Um, I guess you have to own it, right? I mean, you could just say, screw this, I don't want it, and get off TikTok. But a lot of people are addicted to TikTok. It has like 100 million followers. So for people who are a little bit older, don't kind of get the TikTok raise, you're just, you're out of it. Let's just put it that way. But people who are complaining, yeah, this is me, and it's kind of embarrassing, uh, it makes for a great piece in The Atlantic. I suggest it uh, for you. There's my algorithm. I suggest things. Why don't you go read this? Why don't you check out this podcast? Why don't you go read that? It's my way of uh, shaping what you can see because we all want to know, like, what are people that we like and respect or we think are interesting? What do they read? What do they click on? What do they like to watch? But it's not an algorithm. You just got me giving you my opinions. Take them or leave them. Hope you had a great day. Hope you'll subscribe to this podcast. You get it every day. Apple iTunes is a good way or on your Amazon device. We'll be back here tomorrow with more buzzing. From the Fox News Podcasts Network, subscribe and listen to the Trey Gowdy Podcast. Former federal prosecutor and four-term U.S. congressman from South Carolina brings you a -a one-of-a-kind podcast. Subscribe and listen now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com.